Hello and welcome to You Don't Know Lit. My name is Nick Argeris and this week I'm looking for the best debunked book. Debunked book. Like debunked beds. Guys, De- can we just beds. agree first of all before we are even introduced? The word debunked is an incredible word. Yeah, it's fun to say. It's evocative too. Like it feels like something bad happened to that thing. Debunked. And, and you know what doesn't come up much is bunking. Oh, no. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, we need kids to bu- these days in their this. lack of bunking. Yeah, we need to bunk right? this theory. We need to bunk it up. You guys are high school English teachers. Can you use bunk in a sentence for me? I don't. Well, you could say history is bunk. Mm-hmm. Um, to refer mm-hmm. to it's- as like like <laughs> it's like there was a time when the word bunk meant crap, like mm-hmm. nonsense. Oh yes. Who was it that said history is bunk? Mm-hmm. History is bunk. When I was a kid, my brother Sid said everything was bunk, right? He'd be like, that's bunk. That's bunk, man. So if I, when I learn something, am I bunked? Is it being bunked into my head? No. Mm. No. If, it, if debunked is learning that something isn't true, bunking is surely learning something that is true. I'm looking up the online etym- this in the online etymological dictionary because I don't actually know, because you the, don't know. where you don't know. bunking came from. Etymology is so tricky. I also feel like there's a whole class of words that like the negative of them is true. So like you can debunk something, but you cannot bunk it, right? Like if something is unequivocal, could it be equivocal? Yeah, Yeah. it it actually can. Yeah, it can, it can. Um, What's a good example? Oh, you guys, it actually comes from the same. I was on the right track. Um, Historically, Henry Ford said history is more or less bunk. He meant history is more or less nonsense. The etymology of debunk is to expose false or nonsensical claims or sentiments from debunk. That is to remove the bunk from something. And um. bunk, bunk meaning, <laughs> bunk meaning crap. So, so bunk de- at its de- very origin meant this is BS. Oh, this is even better. Bunk is that little, that this stuff is even that you better. wake up in the morning that's in your eyes. No, that's gunk. That's gunk. This is oh. even better, you guys. The word bunk is a deliberate uh, slur against a county <laughs> oh, in God. North in, in county in North Carolina. Buncombe County is a county in oh. North Carolina, which supposedly, <laughs> supposedly, uh, the, the representative from Buncombe County uh, stood up and said, I'm going to make a, a, a long, nonsensical speech. And it became, this is in 1841, it became like a uh, kind of Congress and eventually U.S. journalism slang for just BS. That's nonsense. a bunk speech. That's the kind of peach, speech that would come out of Buncombe County, North Carolina. Exactly. So bunk. to wow. debunk is to remove the Buncombe County-esque nonsense from I love etymology this is the best really good i really love etymology but every time you do etymology research there's just this little thing in the back of your head that's going this is probably wrong right like this feels wrong is is this the history what's it called when um you know politicians they they don't stop talking and they filibuster Uh, is this the history of a filibuster is he the first mayor uh, I mean, the, the, I'm reading the description. I'm reading the description of the 1820 speech where he's doing this, and it, it sounds like a proto filibuster. I don't believe he was the first one to filibuster. Certainly, I'm, don't the worry. Spirit. I'm looking up filibuster right now. We'll look into that. Um, mm. Keep us updated. Uh, I'm ready now. Apparently, apparent. What? This is even worse, you yep. guys. Apparently, filibuster initially referred to. A Bill Buster, <laughs> a Dutch, a Dutch pirate. Okay. Oh no. Dutch pirates were referred to as filibusters, flibutors, or filibusteros. At some point, it turned into lawless military adventurers who went to Central America to overthrow governments. Mm-hmm. Filibusters. And it didn't show up until 1865 because people on the floor of the Houses of Congress were trying to hijack or pirate debate and overthrow the usual order of authority. So when you are filibustering, you are taking yeah. what is a, 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 a nice ship of state and you are, you are jumping on board with, with cutlasses in your teeth and you're trying to, 
to sink it. You know, I really like that because I always assumed that the word had to do more with like the speech giving, right? Like it meant just a really long speech is what you think of, but it has nothing to do with that. It only has to do with the, with the pirate intentions beyond behind that. That's incredible. I love that. Joe, sometimes when you tell stories, I feel like you're filibustering us. (laughs) Well, you should be in my class. Yes. Uh, To help me, our two high school English teachers, Ian and Joe. Hi, Nick. My name is Joe Holshue. I am a high school English teacher. I am here to tell you that an apple a day does not keep the doctor away. That tryptophan does not make you sleepy. And eating chocolate does not give you acne. And if you drop a piece of food on the floor and you pick it up before five seconds, that doesn't actually do anything to stop it from being gross. If you are looking for a debunked book this week, I brought a classic a cl- uh, uh, maybe a notorious one notorious I, brought, I don't know why it's a question you brought it joe yeah i brought malcolm gladwell's 2008 sensation oh interesting outliers good evening nick good evening joe good morning litheads this week i brought a book that's been debunked so hard i can't even find the ladder Got it's a bunk yeah. bed joke. Get it. I get we can it. I cut get that it. if you want. No, I'd yeah, like you to again. keep it in. This is part of my literary heritage. <laughs> my this is part of my papers. To the fact. Uh, this week I brought um, another uh, another early aughts book. James Frey's Story of Addiction, A Million Little Pieces. And these were recommended by Lithead Turi. Um, in fact, both books were recommended by Turi and the theme was recommended. Terry bringing the total package. May your earlobes turn into assholes and shit on your shoulders. Hey, the plot doesn't fucking matter at all. This is what I think it's about. If you look closely <laughs> enough, every author was at some point a racist. Audiobooks don't count, right? All art is quite useless. <laughs> who, who told you that? Fun fact, that is how Joe laughs. <laughs>, 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 <laughs> Well, welcome, Litheads, to Eat or No Lit, a weekly, or as we call it, strongly podcast, where every week we pick a theme. And or Litheads do. Yeah, or Litheads do. I think they know that. Do I have to say this anymore? I, I, I think you do. We have to always imagine there are new week. listeners. I like, okay, can I tell you something? I like yeah. podcasts with a structure. Yeah. yeah. It, it's comforting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this show is, if nothing else, it is comforting. <laughs> nothing else is structured. <laughs> it's really and funny. Structured. Please see, please see the introduction. Uh, okay, we have uh, rules. Rule number one: structure. Structure. Yeah, it's rule right number there. two: not a rule. No filibustering. And rule number three: <laughs> go for the throat. Who's going to win today? Mar- Malcolm Gladwell or a James million Ray. people? James Ray. <laughs> Only time will tell. Uh, Joe, tell me what your book is about. Nick, this week I brought a book about the Beatles, Canadian youth hockey players, Bill Gates and J. Robert Oppenheimer. It's a book about success, who achieves it and how they get there. More than anything, it's a book about how idea, how our ideas about the individual merit that leads to success are largely wrong. Malcolm Gladwell in his 2008 book dives into family, culture, friendship, and background and how those things make people who they are much more than any intrinsic qualities. It's full of anecdotes. It's wildly engaging. It makes you feel smart and it's been largely criticized in the 20 years since its massive success. I've brought Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. Outliers. Now, is this the book? Okay, so I think I've read this, uh, Mm -hmm. but it was- Everybody has read this. Decades ago. Yes, everybody read this forty decade. years ago. Now, well, well, and, 2008. Right, and um, is this the one with the ten thousand hours? This, in uh, it, or yes. is that a diff- okay. Oh, this is the this book. This is ten thousand hours. So Malcolm Gladwell did not invent ten, the ten thousand hour rule. He, however, or the number. launched it into the popular consciousness. Like, if you've ever heard the ten thousand hour rule, okay. you have Malcolm Gladwell to thank. Had he previously spent 10,000 hours writing this book or doing anything? Like, is there any degree of like, hey, I've spent 10,000 hours carving whales. Yeah. Okay. So there actually is that exactly in which he says like, you know, when I look at my time as a journalist, I've been doing this for about 10,000 hours now, which makes me an expert. That is definitely (laughs) a thing that happens in this book. That's a very, that's a very like kind of circular. It's like very hermetically Mm -hmm. sealed. Yep. Uh, Makes you feel good. 
Sounds like a meaty bone, Joe. Ian, yeah. I hope yours is so is meaty. Yeah. Yeah. Ian, tell yep. us about your meaty bone. <laughs> <laughs> when it first came out in 2003, James Frey's memoir of addiction and recovery was widely praised for its visceral depictions of substance dependence, its truth, its emotional psychological truth, and its riveting prose. Oprah Winfrey chose it for her book club. Frey was everywhere, but cracks gradually appeared in the facticity of Frey's narrative. And by 2006, his best-selling memoir, A Little Million Little Pieces, was being reclassified in libraries as a best-selling novel. This book is fake. It is fiction. Sweet. It is a lie. So this guy wrote it? Yep. Yes, cool. James Ray. And then it's about him. And it's about his addiction and his crimes, his evil crimes, and his beautiful girlfriend who used to be a prostitute, and his difficulty wow. in life. Okay, I want to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Ian, you're going first. Great. Congrats. I, I want to first situate this in a long... I, I was thinking about doing a game, but then I realized this is a super boring, stupid game because it okay. appeals, appeals to me and probably to nobody else. There is a long, long tradition of literary hoaxes. So Ooh. for whatever reason... What is a literary hoax? Literature has attracted... Um, people presenting, either presenting a book as written by someone who didn't write it or sure. presenting, uh, fictional things as, as truthful. So, um, in the 1700s, there were a lot of these people were finding, Oh, look at this. Look at this ancient Irish poet. He's the Irish equivalent of Homer. His name is Ossian. And then people were like, well, that's, that's actually, it looks like that guy over there. It looks like his poetry. Um, there was a, a guy, a fellow who faked Shakespeare plays. Um, he said, look, I've discovered some manuscript Shakespeare plays. Um, yeah. And that, those were lies. Um, there have been politically motivated mockeries of modernist poetry. Some poets in, I want to say Australia um, came up sure. with. But how would you know? Because they eventually they, they get they get they get busted. Yeah, uh, it's a big war. The internet, Joe, ever heard of it? They get debunked. Fabricated Hitler diaries. Some somebody was like, "I'm going to make a buck. I'm going to pretend that I found Hitler's diary." Snake and oil. You know what? I'm sick of Ian ghostwriters. Oh boy. <laughs> now it's so spooky. This now, week we're Joe, alienating ghostwriters. Now, mm -hmm. Joe, yes. you ghost edit. I do. I think that's different. Oh, okay. Well, I, I would like to let you know That's that nice. the editing I do is largely so heavy handed that it is definitely ghost, right? <laughs> Interesting. Mm -hmm. You look um, at it, you cross it out, you say, what if you did this instead? Yeah, you I'm like, okay, this is paragraphs. pretty good. This is pretty good, but allow me to write uh, the next chapter for you. I guess you're part of the problem then. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Oh, I think yes. Joe is often part of the problem. My point is though, I think ghost writers are, I don't think people realize everything is ghost how incredibly what do you mean? prevalent it it's, is it's it's in everything all mainstreams of music are heavily produced and they oh, have ghostwriters and musicians that come in and actually write certain things uh when you see actors that go on a talk show at night yeah that's all ghostwritten they practice for months with yeah. writers ahead of time and write these monologues that mm -hmm. they pretend are their own stories. It's just everywhere. Every once you start tuning into how to like the bullshit in the world, it really starts to get overwhelming where you're like, oh, so is is everything fake? It feels right. like everything might be fake. I hate how everything is fake. We gotta stop complaining. Ian, tell us about the story of this book and yeah. then maybe we can talk about what the the fake stuff is. So I think, I think us, to, to understand why the fakeness matters so much, I think it sounds like Joe's situation is more like Gladwell's ideas um have been programmatically debunked. Like these are mm -hmm. these are these are a nonsense way to view the world. This story is right. much more personal. So um Frey is it's it's a memoir. He presents it as a memoir. Um the main character is him. He writes in first person, I um people refer to him as James. Um, he goes to rehab. He has an alcohol and crack addiction. Um, he gets clean. He doesn't like it. He almost relapses multiple times. Uh, he meets some really strange people. He has fraught relationships with his family. He finds love. He heals. 
Uh, there's a lot of blood and guts literally in this story. Apparently, Crack does some pretty nasty things to you on the inside. Um, there's some pretty graphic self-harm. There's a lot of psychological torment. And the important thing about all this in the story, Frey says, this happened to me. The flesh and blood dude, the, the man, the author who is now on Oprah, on talk shows, on the radio, got these book signings. Well, which is a big deal because like, you know, Ian, you and I have a famous fiction, nonfiction divide. And one of the things that always appeals to me about nonfiction is like that story, the story that you just told as a fiction has zero appeal to me. Like, like absolutely zero. I would say less. I would say say dramatically less. Yeah, Neg- less than zero, Ian. How is that possible? <laughs> I'm not a math boy. <laughs> you divide this by zero, you see. Podcast. Mm. However, as a fact, <laughs> as a person being like, this is my story. This is what I learned. I think that is intrinsically extremely interesting. Right, and I would, I would uh, profoundly disagree with you. There's, there's zero. <laughs> but I think, I think um, this is beautiful, Joe. You're anticipating my next bullet point. I think this has to, in order for this Ooh, to really exciting. work well, it has to be. A memoir it has to be truthful because it's hopeful in a way that a fictional recovery can't be a fictional recovery it, it says basically hey look at this hypothetical person they're bad off but now they're healed you can too and that is less tethered to reality than yeah. look at this human person who is addicted and they're healed you can too i would say that's it, it can still be effective i think Part of the beauty, here we go, the beauty of literature is that it uh, oh, speaks to God. the human the human tradition, like the human yeah. um, condition. Like this is, it, it says something about people. But but he, when he says, this is me, this is my guts I was puking out up, this is, this is my root canal that I was having, this is my, you know, delirium tremens as I was coming off of, of my alcohol addiction. We're like, okay, I trust you. There is some... So what is the what is the lying bad? What does the book say? Like what 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 is it meant to say? It, it, is it just the story about his recovery? And yeah, it, it's 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 this oh. inspiring memoir, an inspiring <laughs> memoir of how I, definitely real human person James Frey, had these definitely real human things that happened to me. I drove my I was high on crack oh, and I drove my cop my car so into a cop shitty. and I got into a huge fist fight and they they. They they want to make an example out of me in that small town in Ohio and so I don't uh, think it's quite this uh, dra- drastic but this reminds me of like the uh the, the Daily Show drop the comedian uh that was they were basically saying he was going to take over the for the Daily Show and then it came out that like his stories on stage about his life are like oh, fabricated right, and like yeah. he said he was like attacked with anthrax and he wasn't and all this stuff and. It was it. The, my point is that it wasn't bad that he was lying. It was bad that he was lying because the whole purpose was to be vulnerable and talk about yes. your life and your truth yes. and try to inspire. And it's just it's it's a it's a deception at the highest level, kind of. And it's deception. It's deception with with um with high stakes. Because uh-huh. you, with these kinds of narratives, you always like there are people who will say, you know, no, if you're addicted, it's it's you're done. Like we should put the homeless in 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 these in these camps and round them up wow. and stuff. No, yeah. I'm serious. Like like there yeah. there are always people who are willing to dehumanize yeah. pe- folks with addictions, and so for him to come along and say, well, yeah, here's me, a human. Like feel how feel how real this is, and then to be debunked. Yeah, that makes it's pretty it harmful. Yeah, it's like giving yeah. fodder. Like Ian. everyone who holds him up is this kind of paragon. Guess what? He's actually not. You walked in knowing it wasn't true, correct? No. No. So I walked in knowing that Turi had recommended this book for Debunked Week. I did not know under what auspices. I wanted to finish the book before I... I wanted to have the experience that everyone else who read this book had, which is in the moment when it was published in 03, which is you read the book, you see the self-presentation as this is true, and then you discover, oh, dang, all the stuff, which I'll get to in a bit. Everything was wrong. Yeah. I re- I read this. I read this. 
I mean, so he he's memoiring, and I'm like, okay, I, I I'm can guess that there's probably it's probably not all true because it's it's for a debunked week. But I I read it sort of sort of straightforward, and I will say I think in, in terms of inspiring and hope, I dis I strongly disagree with a lot of his worldviews, but like some of the stuff he says about sort of holding on and finding the places where you can kind of take take shelter, the people you can take shelter in. This really, really resonated with me. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I think it is possible for fiction to tell the truth about the world. Is that as this is fictionalized, I think it still does tell some truth. But the fact that he if he had only marketed it as autobiographical fiction, it would have been so much better. Uh, you looked up the details. So then, yes, I did the, look up the, the betrayal. Yes. Uh, what what were like? Give us some of the the top juicy bits of betrayal. Oh, it's so juicy. All right. So this book was selected, published in 03, um, selected by Oprah as a book now, club like, book. Back yeah, in the day, this was huge, right? And Oprah's all about empathy. And Oprah's all about like kind of. I mean, I don't, I don't even know if Oprah's doing the book club anymore. Maybe she stopped and she started again, but. Um, Oprah kind of went so far as to say, like she went, she she called in to Larry King Live, and she was like, "It doesn't really matter if this book is perfectly true in every regard. What matters is the oh, message." I remember that. Do you? Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember her calling in. That was like a big deal. It was, <laughs> and she's like, like "The truth doesn't matter as much as the message." And yeah. this book sells millions of copies, and it's hugely. It's like a bestseller. He writes a sequel where he's like. At the end of the first book, like we kind of, ha he, he has a relationship with um, another inmate. There's this other inmate who's kind of like a father figure. And, and so the second book is like more with the father figure. And this is also marketed as a memoir. And people are like, wow, James Frey, you're this voice. You're this important person. And there are some kind of negative reviews. Like, I thought this was boring. I thought this was stupid. It's like a cheap Hemingway knockoff. But for the most part, the most part, everyone loves it. And then journalists begin to investigate and they look at key parts of Frey's story and they say, well, did he indeed have a girlfriend who was a former prostitute? Did what happens to her in the book kind of match reality? Did he commit these big wild crimes in a small town in Ohio while he was high on crack? And in some cases, the answers to these questions are, we can't confirm it. And in some cases, the answers are, unequivocally no so the the, the 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 ohio is a good example early ish in the book he's like hey what you what you in for oh wow i, I was in i was doing i was smoking crack and I, I i i was driving my car super fast and i i ran into a police officer and then i jumped out and i began fighting with them before long 87 other people were involved and he presents this as like truthful and this becomes an issue later in the book as like the cops in the Ohio town, everyone else is willing to work with his criminal charges, but the cops in this Ohio town want to make an example out of him. And the journalists track down this town. They look at the, the booking. They talk to the cops there and the cops are like, no, he was not. He was not violent. He was not uncooperative. He was here for a few hours. He was polite and kind. And um, we, uh, we waited we, quietly in the waiting room. We, yeah, we, uh, we wrapped that up quickly, and he yeah. went along his way. There was really no nice guy. There was yeah. <laughs> and so, like, you've got some we can't confirm this, and others like uh, okay. we can we can confirm this is not true. So, Joe, I'm assuming that you know that some of Malcolm Gladwell's stuff was not correct. Sure. Did you know that coming in? No, I never oh, do that coming in. I read this oh, book. Really? Was pretty, no, I read this book. Both, you with, guys well, are just ignorant. I have read <laughs> my book um, before. I, I've read my book many times. I think like this book when it came out was very, very successful. Yes. And I think I came yes. across it then. Um, at the time, it, it struck me as just good, 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 truthful stuff. Um, since then, it's been poked at, proud of that. I think a largely as a backlash of its success. The main thing I remember about Ian's book is Ian, you talked about um, Oprah, right? Like the Oprah endorsement of this. I remember Jonathan Frey going on Oprah and apologizing. Like that was like a moment in, in, 
in pop culture where like Wait, he went on. This is the next guys. This is the next okay. act because the drama yes. is not done. This okay, is not yes. just he goes on Oprah. Oh, no. She co- this Do you remember is this? that guy? This is that guy. Oh, it's so good. It's oh so freaking God. juicy. It does not end. Here we go. Here's more. She just roasts him on TV. It's After amazing. this starts to come out, <laughs> Oprah says, hey, James, why don't you come on back? And bring your publisher yeah. too. We're gonna have a let's, panel let's discussion. We're gonna have a panel discussion on truth in America. This is a hundred percent an ambush in the green room. Oh. Allegedly, Oprah walks in and says, "Yeah, we're actually ditching the panel. We're doing a segment on the James Frey controversy." So she brings him on and asks him a bunch of specific questions. Like, um, to be clear, he's like, "Yeah, that sounds good." Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think at that point you well, you got to kind of roll with it. Um, she asks him like, "How many root canals did you have without anesthesia?" You talk uh, about these root canals. How many did you have? And then she's like fact checking on all all this stuff. And then she brings out his editor who is there, and she's like, "So, Nan, tell us tell us how well you fact checked this book." And Nan goes, "Not at all." Yeah, Nan I goes, was not asked to. Sp- <laughs> I was informed by his representatives that this is brutally honest. Mm-hmm. I believed him. Yeah. So oh, widespread man. mockery and condemnation. It's a great interview, Litheads. Go if watch that on YouTube. It a is lo- entertaining. <laughs> a lot of people. A lot of people just kind of blew up at that point. It got so bad that the publishers, his publishers, had a a uh, a fund a million plus dollar fund established to refund people who had bought the book oh, wow. and could could submit like an affidavit they, they had to submit like a part of the book uh either page 163 of the of the hardcover or the, the cover of the paperback and um and and a, a signed statement yes i bought this book believing it was true and that you could get your money back wow um, only 1700 people took advantage of this but it's incredible. Joseph, we, we have done about 200 hours of podcasting. You and I. And, well, and Ian. The three of us. I'm here. Right. And the Lidheads. Even if you combined all of that, we're not even 10% of no. the way to being experts at podcasting. Not even close. Excuse me? Um, Mr. Nick, I have a question. I hope it's not about that math because I'm not sure if that was right. <laughs> well, I mean, let's say let's say for every for every book on average, for every okay. book we read, we could double it. Ten ten hours. Twenty ten hours, hours minimum. Ten hours of reading and prep. What that, are you trying to say, Ian? That might stack up, Joseph. What's your book about? And then how did it make you feel that it was all a lie? All right, so Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, Mel- Malcolm Gladwell was a what is right. Malcolm Gladwell is a writer. He is alive, but I can look into it. Yep, he came up as a reporter. He wrote for some really prestigious publications. He wrote for like um, I want to say like the Washington Post, and like he was a staff writer on the New Yorker for I, I think still is a staff writer on the New Yorker, which. In the world of dream jobs for a writer, staff writer on the New Yorker is at the top of the list, right? Like, is it? It's. It's. I mean, I mean, number one is I want to be Stephen King, or I guess number one is I want to be Ernest Hemingway. Number Hemingway. one is Stephen. Number King. two is Stephen. Number one King, is I want to be James Frey. Apparently, bulletproof. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love. I love that it really got to Ian. Okay, great. <laughs> So he was a staff writer on The New Yorker for for years and years. He still is a staff writer on The New Yorker. And Mm -hmm. he pursued stories that he thought was interesting as part of that. He thought were interesting as part of that job. And at a certain point, he started wondering about how Americans, uh, Americans specifically, he started wondering about the narrative that we have around success. Like, what makes people a mega success? What makes people absolutely like revered by those around them. And one of the things he's noticed is at the time and today, we have a narrative around intrinsic qualities of these people. That person is super smart. That person is super charismatic. That person is super talented. They are very tall, handsome teeth. Yes. All those things. Lives in Reno, Nevada. (laughs) All those things matter. Um, And he said, 
You know, I started looking around New York City at all these corporate lawyers, and I started wondering, why are all these guys the same guy? Like, <laughs> why do they all... Right, because they got the suits and stuff. And, and not just the suits and stuff, but like, why do they all have the same background? Why did they all go to the same schools? Why do they all have like the same family situations that they came out of? And that's what launched this book. And he wrote a book that was about that, that where he tried to look at what actually makes people successful. And Outliers uh, is the book that came from it. Where does the name come from? But like, what is that in reference to? Yeah, it's it's in reference to these people. Like Bill Gates oh, it is, is okay. an outlier, right? The Beatles are an outlier. There are many, okay. many rock and roll bands. There's just one Beatles. So it's not your everyday successful day trader necessarily. It is really these true outliers. These are the people true outliers. Yes. You know their first and last names. The people at the top of their profession, at the edge of their field, like the people whose names that we, you know, three guys on a podcast 20 years later recognize today. William Gates. Mm-hmm. William H. Gates. So he, there's a lot of stuff from this book that you've probably heard before, Nick. Like you, you said you think you've maybe read this. Is this, this is his real, I mean, I think I, I, I listened, I did an audio book. Yeah, this uh, is... Yeah. I think this is his most famous book. I, yeah, I'm, I think yeah. so. This is where all like his isms come from. This is like, uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. It's like very like bite-sized chapters with yeah. like a, a focused topic within this Wait, subject. Is this the art of war? It's basically art of war. The, war the for, art like, of war, but uh, Malcolm Gladwell. For people who read the New Yorker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The art of war for people that read the New Yorker. Yeah, so that that is it. Like, this is full of bits. It's full of bites. It's full of sound bites. It's full of, like, these tiny little meme nuggets that just absolutely stick with you. And I was so surprised revisiting this book this week, how many of the ideas in this book, you know, once an idea enters your head... It's just yours. You know, you can do with it what you want. It kicks around there for years and years. That's a Joe. That sounds like plagiarism to me. (laughs) I'm a little nervous about these ideas. All right. I was surprised how many of these things I've been kicking around for years and have just accepted as, as fact, like have really shaped my worldview. And that started in this book. We talked about the 10,000 hour rule. Famously, this is for the lit heads that explain it, that are not in the know. This is oh for the kids in back. Mm-hmm. For That's the kids good, in the back, a good expression for this show because and it's kind of louder. like a school. You know, yeah, I get. It. I think it's great. Uh-huh. It's good. High one. schooling the teachers. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So for the kids in the back, ten thousand hour rule is is the idea that hey, when we look at people that are professionals in their field that are at the edge of the field that are absolutely super successful and really, really good at what they do. One of the things that they seem to have in common, no matter how, no matter what field it is, is that they have spent, a, they have accrued, maybe is the better word, about 10,000 hours of deliberate practice doing that thing. So he talks about violinists, for example, right? And he says, hey, like when you look at violinists and the people who join the Philadelphia Philharmonic, right? He says the people on the Philadelphia Philharmonic, like the borderline, like the 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 line that you absolutely must cross to be considered world class is you have to have accrued about 10,000 hours of practice. He then goes on to to give a lot of anecdotes of extremely successful people and how this 10,000 hour rule applies to them. He Joe, can I to, quick share some mathematics? Please. Yes, let's hit it. Before you before you share those examples. Yeah. 10,000 10, hours at eight hours a day Yep, is about three and a half years. Is that so, right? Okay, but are you doing- I don't know. I don't know. Are you doing- I don't every, know. Are you doing every okay. every day? Do you have any weekends? Every day. So, no so, weekends, baby. You want to be the best? Three and a half years of no weekends. I mean, that sounds kind of like grad school, and I am not the best. Not, so. <laughs> so a couple of caveats for that. Like, Malcolm yeah. Gladwell does say, like, hey, that 10,000 hours, it can't, like, you don't get better at driving, even though you've been driving for well over 10,000 hours in your life, right? It's are because you not getting you, better at driving? <laughs> It's because you are no longer deliberately practicing driving. 
it, the deliberate is is key. Deliberate is absolutely massive. So here. is Joe. Get cut to the punchline. Is this true? How is this debunked? Where's the bunkum? Take the bunkum. Yeah, so out this of is debunked. Where so first of all, Malcolm Gladwell is not. He's not a researcher. Right. This is not his thing. He's a journalist. Uh-oh. Right. Like oh, he's a, he's a journalist. Great. So yeah. he pulls together scientific articles. He reaches out to the scientists. He interviews the people. And basically the way that this gets debunked is Malcolm Gladwell presents this in a very straightforward way, a very accessible way, almost like a popcorn oh, way. Like these books are fun to oh. read. They are intrinsically engaging. They're so well entertaining. Read. They're so entertaining. So entertaining. And pretty much every criticism of his writing boils down to hey malcolm thanks for writing that really appreciate all the extra exposure i've gotten as an academic but it's actually quite a bit more complicated than how you've laid it out just Uh-oh. now so oh for example like do, do ten thousand hours matter yeah obviously right like if you practice at something you get a ton better at that thing those hours, though, and this is um, what what researchers have said, those hours account for about 25% of a person's success, right? Like, so do, do those 10,000 hours matter? Yes, 25%. Okay. Can I say something? Yes. I wish you would. Do, doesn't that sound like two people making stupid arguments? Like, it's 10,000 hours. No, it isn't. Well, it's like, I, do, what? What an unknowable thing, though. 25%. Why not 26%? Yeah. Okay. So these things come up all the time. And especially this is like, this is like sociology that his research is in, or that his reporting <laughs> is in, in a lot of ways, which of all the hard sciences, this is not one of them, right? Like the social science are famously wishy-washy when it comes to research and methodology and experimentation, because it's, it's tricky. You know, you can't, Hide, you can't isolate a helium atom and do experiments on it. It's like As people and things, yeah. right? So, yeah, so I the 10,000 hours, like, I wish it I accounts could. for about 25%. Um, it's complicated. Age matters a lot. Genetics matter, matter a lot. Um, sure. There's, it seems like there's a childhood window in which gains are huge, right? You can imagine learning a language as a, as a child versus uh, growing up maybe in a two-language household versus um, like learning it in French class in, in high school. Um, yeah. It talks about genetics, like identical twin drawing ability. I thought this is fascinating. Identical twin drawing ability is much more closely linked than fraternal twin drawing ability, which Whoa. means that like there's a huge like drawing gene in people like you have a natural aptitude for things you have a natural competency for things and ultimately like the hour the number of hours to reach master status like it ranges a bunch um in a study that they did on chess on chess players who like uh, were able to attain the rank of master on one end somebody was able to a rank to achieve that rank in about 700 hours of practice which for those of you mathematicians out there, is not even close to 10,000. And on the far end, it's about 17,000 hours of of practice, which means that some players, in order to achieve the same status, needed 22 times more practice hours. That's enough, math teacher. So this this, this can't be generalized. Yes, it absolutely cannot be generalized. Even the founder of the 10,000-hour rule, like the, the, the coiner of it, I guess I should say. He's Mr. Like, 10,000. He, Mr. Yeah. 10,000. He said, hey, um, thank you, but 10,000 was kind of a broad average, and I really just picked it because it was a really <laughs> sticky number. Like, it's a really catchy number. Nice. So thanks, but yeah. it's complicated. Joe, a couple things. Uh, yes. Ted Thousand would be a great name. Hey, Ted Thousand? Yeah. Yep, really uh, good. Two, I think the interesting thing here, or maybe the thing that maybe hasn't been said, is that like this book is really grounded. Mm-hmm. It's grounded in like uh, this sense of science and, yeah, and, and proof. Right. And yeah. It presents itself as that. Is that it, it's, when you're reading it, you are, it's, you're tripping over the thought constantly of, wow, I can't believe that. I yeah. can't believe that. That's all you say reading the whole book. So that, it it does seem like in direct opposition 
like almost like it balances. I've heard this called turns out journalism before, right? Like this whole genre <laughs> nice, of journalism, nice. which is basically like, hey, you think the world is one way. Yep. Turns out, right? Yeah. And there's something like, I think of Freakonomics as a famous example of this as yeah. well, a book that was really popular around the same time where it's, where it's, it's so it's like addictive or something. Like yeah. it's so naturally compelling. It's like all these other idiots think the world is this way, but you, oh, you dear reader, and I, we know the truth. Actually, nah, I've read Freakonomics. That was <laughs> I mean, what, but when I think of this book, I can't Just separate it bar- from Freakonomics. The They're that- so similar. It's the claim that like we've cracked the theory of everything. Like I think this mm-hmm. is why... Uh, um, conspiracy theories go like yeah. you, you want to be the the one with the gnosis the knowledge yeah. the secret like the hidden understanding of the way things really right. work it's that we've cracked the theory of everything and hey the, the and the answer guys is actually pretty simple right yes. if you, if you right. think about it for a second it makes a lot you're of not sense. gonna believe the answer yes. okay here's my third thing that's mm-hmm. one example. That's his most famous ones. Are there other ones that are maybe not more heinous, but like yeah. is that as bad as it gets? Because so I'll be honest, it seems pretty soft. Yeah, here's some things that I've been thinking about for a long time that like I realized came from this book. I wouldn't have been able to tell you this. Um, Canadian youth hockey players, Nick, stop me if you've heard this before. Canadian, <laughs> when I love you the begin that way. migrate south in the summer, <laughs> <laughs> just like the geese. <laughs> That's how they got the name. Um, <laughs> When you look at professional hockey players, players in the National Hockey League, something like 70% of them are born in the first three months of the year, are born in January, February, or March. One of the reasons Malcolm Gladwell posits, and I don't think he comes up with this. I think this is based on some, uh, again, like uh, sociology research, sociological research. One of the reasons is that when you're a little baby kid and you are adorable in your hockey pads and you start youth hockey at four years old, some of those kids just turned four years old. The kids that were born in January, February, and March, though, are almost five years old when they start that. Like it has to do with like cutoff dates for when you enter your kid oh. into these leagues. Okay. Good. Therefore, the kids born in January, February, March are a year older, bigger, stronger, faster, smarter than those other kids. And obviously they're the best. So they go to the better teams. They get put into the traveling teams. They play against the stiffer competition. And therefore, hockey players in the NHL are born in January, February, and March by wildly disproportionate disproportionate margins. So we should keep CeCe back. Yeah, if you want to know, should I hold my kid back from school an extra year? Malcolm Gladwell would say, absolutely, you're an absolute fool if you don't. They will have every advantage over their peers. So is that true? I don't know. (laughs) And And that's like the thing is like, when you read this book, he makes a lot of claims like this. And, and... I don't know you what it? to yeah. believe and what not to. Can I break off a couple more for you here? God, I hope they're as good as that last one. This oh. book is so, it's really good. It, I, I think, I mean, I've read, I don't know if I've read it at this point. I'll <laughs> be honest, I might have read Freakonomics. I might have read Outliers. I don't fucking know. Read them both. They're both really entertaining. And who cares if it's wrong? He makes an argument at one point that, um, and, and I feel like as this book goes on, each argument gets just like a little less plausible than the one that came before it. Oh, and he says, okay, bear with me for a second. This is Malcolm Ad- Gladwell saying this, not me. He said, oh boy. So do you know how Asians are like really good at math, right? Okay. He, yep. he goes there. He goes there. He says, yeah. There's evidence to show, there are studies to show, this isn't me, Malcolm Gladwell, saying it's sociologist, to saying that Asians are good at mathematics because of, because I'm putting this on the internet. (laughs) 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 And I'm going to edit it in such a way that makes you look great, Joe. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Excellent. Fantastic. That's all I ask. He says... One of the reasons that Asian cultures excel at math is because when you think about Asian agriculture versus Western agriculture, Western agriculture 
largely benefits from planting the seed and then leaving it alone. Rice paddies, however, benefit oh, no. from benefit from constant cultivation, constant pruning. And one of the things that makes it it's a metaphor here, one of the things that makes you good at math is being willing out willing to hang out in a in a hard problem for a long time. Like constantly yeah. revisiting, constantly doing. And he talks about like shorter summer recesses than Americans, like gains that they have. He talks about how the pattern of words for counting numbers is more logical than Asian cultures. So for example, we say one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. 10, oh, yeah. 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, where we actually, when you say the word 14, you're putting the tens digit second. You're putting yep. the ones digit first. I'm tracking. Where he says, for example, in, in um, most Asian counting systems, it will say three and 10, four and 10, five and 10. So he's saying literally it lines up better in your brain. Right. Like when you are multiplying numbers, like everything's in the same. But you're saying like their their language is written in a way. OK, we're really. Uh, has that been debunked? <laughs> OK, once again, what are you going with this? Joe? What's frustrating about reading this book again is I don't know. Right. Like it's like as soon as the rug gets pulled out from that very first thing, as soon as the rug yeah. gets pulled out from some of this stuff, you really start to wonder, like, yeah. yep. wait a second. I don't know if I should believe any of this stuff that has been in my brain for 20 years at this point. Right. Yeah. So is my life a lie is what I'm saying. He talks about plane crashes being more common in countries with deferential cultures, like cultures that are deferential to authority because people will not tell the um, air traffic controller. Pilots will not tell the air traffic controller like they won't be assertive enough with them. He talks about how Scottish and Appalachian culture have a history of violent feuds because of like they need to guard against livestock rustlers. Like some of this sounds like absolute craziness, but when he writes it, it seems so convincing. You mentioned like the 10,000 hours, like these researchers came in. Are there any other ones that have been debunked? Yeah. So every specifically everything that, every criticism of this book, every criticism of Malcolm Gladwell's methodology, if you call it that boils down to, Hey, it's way more complicated than that. Like you, you have produced an extremely consumable version of our research, but it's much more complicated. Um, gentlemen, welcome to Tiffany's, a safe place for you to tell me all the good things about your book. Yes. Um, I don't know how to, I don't even, this is like reverse psychology right now. I don't know what to ask you. Yeah. Cause it's weird. Cause it's like, well, wait, what's the bad thing about your book? And it's like, I feel like I was just talking about the bad things. Okay. This is what, something good about it. This is what's heartbreaking about this book. Or this is why I really kind of disliked revisiting this, this time through the new lens that, um, that this week's episode is, th- is for Malcolm Gladwell, as we've discussed is so engaging. His writing is dead clear. It's dead simple. His books are filled with stories and anecdotes about like weirdos. Like it is so engaging and the turns out nature of them makes you feel smart. Mm. One of the things that I, you know, one of the things that I hated about this book this week is like, I'm not kidding where I, like when I talk about those Canadian hockey players, I've been thinking about that for 20 years and I didn't know where it came from. Right. Like, but it was like this thing that has like, just cemented itself into my worldview. It's like, this oh, could be a personal issue, Jeff. Yeah. Like, like, should you hold your kid back from entering 4k? Absolutely. You should. Let me tell you about Canadian hockey players, right? The fact that this, that some of this book has been brought under scrutiny, that it has been largely debunked makes me honest to God, question the way that I view the world. Right. Yep. And I'm like, yep. Oh wow. Yep. I hate this. That's the risk. Yeah. That's the risk of it, you know? So that's my Tiffany's. When you onboard the theory of everything, when you install it, and, and then and then someone points out the bugs, uh, it's... You don't even like bugs. Ian, tell me about yours now. So uh, one thing I liked, I guess we're doing both, so I'll say one thing I liked about this book, he writes with panache and he uses, I think, rep- repetition really effectively to kind of communicate the way that this li- his life in the rehab facility goes 
Um, it's repetition that you almost feel like I've read the same thing th- three times in a row, but he introduces enough, like changes a yeah. word, changes a piece here. And so you can see him growing with how he's using repetition. It's a really interesting kind of stylistic piece. This is tough. I'm trying to think about who, what, which, which guy was worse. Because mm-hmm. that's like, who should win or that's who should lose. Like who has betrayed more, right? And this is why you get paid the big bucks because you have to make these hard like, decisions. Damn, Ian, that author getting roasted by Oprah is one Pretty of like good. the best moments in television. It's it's truly agree. incredible. Mm-hmm. It is, it is. You want to crawl out of your skin watching yep. it. And Joe, I think you're right. I think like a lot of this shit is like this book came out when I was young and impressionable, and yeah. I think this yeah. stuff is like with me too. Yeah, and even like. Uh, I think I read it for the first time. Like it all feels so familiar and yeah. it has a way of like really yeah. enforcing this yeah. worldview. Yeah. It's bullshit. Yeah. But I will say this. So it was bull ah, it's kind of bullshit when I first read it. Like you kind of yeah. should believe that it's it's a little bu- bullshit. Right. It's like this seems pretty simple. Pretty simple. Yeah, it's, it's so Ian, I think yours is mm, chef's kiss <laughs> of uh a liar uh uh lies and of, deceit and bunking. Joe, you had too much bunk in yours. Uh, mm-hmm. Ian, uh, good amount of bunk. Yeah, right. the bunk is all gone. <laughs> well, Ian, congratulations on having the worst book this week. Uh, <laughs> oh, and uh, uh, thank you, thank you to Turi for oh, this. Thank you. Really, really, I would never, I would never have read this book if it were not for the recommendation. So, thank you, mm-hmm. Turi. Awesome, Lidhead. If you want to get that high praise, just like Turi just got, well done, Turi. Lidheads, there's a whole bunch you can do if you like this show. You can you can like, subscribe, see us on you know social media of your choice. We're everywhere that you think we are. Um, you can head on over to tweenvogue.com Vogue. or you don't know it, podcast.com. Tweenvogue.com, suggest a book, suggest a theme, or if you want to be a rock star like Turi, suggest all three. Two books and a theme. We call it the, t- the Turi package around here. Uh-huh. We appreciate it. And finally, tell a bookish friend, right? Lidheads beget more lidheads. If you like the show um, and you think you know somebody that seems a little bit bookish, a little bit quiet, a little bit thoughtful, tell them about the show and uh, yeah, that's it. That's it. Congratulations, Ian. Congratulations, James Frey, for your um for the life that you have built on a mountain of dishonesty. Uh, Anthony Bourdain had some thoughts about this book. Uh, Bourdain, Bourdain struggled with um, addiction earlier in his life. He he came he 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 got clean. I think after a while, um, and in 2017, which was not long before he, he passed away, he was asked. The New York Times did. And a profile of him and that talked to him about a bunch of books and like books you like and books that are and they asked him what was the last book that made you furious and this is what he responded james Frey's a million little pieces it was such an obvious transparent steaming heap of falsehood from the first page that i was enraged that anyone on earth would believe a word as a former addict i found this fake redemption memoir to be morally repugnant. <laughs> <laughs>